you, 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 you give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln, okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black, it's our God. Jesus Christ has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. And here we are, back again, back again. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. It's your boy, as always, Dan White Hodge here in the place to be. Um, welcome to Profane Faith. This is your first time listening. Uh, thank you. Welcome. It's great to have you. Um, and uh, if you're not, uh, you're a regular listener, welcome back. It's great to have those you know, regular listeners uh, here and uh, and listening, and uh, I really uh, thank you for you know the support. Thank you for the downloads and the likes. And remember, the currency of uh, podcasting is really the uh, subscribing, uh, liking, uh, rating, and uh, ultimately uh, telling a friend and passing that along. And so. Thank you for those who have, and thank you for those who have put out the good word out there. I do, I appreciate it, and um, yeah, it's it's good. It's good to see just what this show has become for different people and for um, you know for for different audiences. And so it's been it's it's been cool. It's been cool to see that. Um, well, here we are, last uh, week of Black History Month. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe. I know this year I really haven't gotten too much into, um, yeah, this year I was thinking about it. I was like, man, I <laughs> I should probably do a better job of planning and putting things out in regards to, you know, specific themes. Um, but, uh, you know, it does not go unnoticed on me, obviously, uh, with Black History Month and, uh, you know, all the things and the accomplishments of black folks across the time and timelines and all that great stuff. Um, you know, I think it's important to 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 recognize and to remember those things. I think for me, um, you know, it it's much more about keeping that um, in people's presence. And I get, you know, the month is dedicated to that, you know, whether it be entertainers, artists, musicians, uh, you know, um, educators, scientists, mathematicians, uh, you know, parents, just the day in and day out. And I think that for me is, is, is what, you know, and part of what I have tried to do with this show is to highlight, right, the day ins and day outs of folks who I find interesting and also have amazing stories. And so that's been part of what this podcast has been about. And, you know, having people engage with those narratives, particularly with folks, you know, I mean, I think about it like my grandmother, you know, Didi, that I've talked about on the show a few times. And, you know, she is not going to ever be in no history book. She's not going to be, you know, in some kind of, you know, textbook that, you know, talks about her significance. And I think that's part of, 
you know, the thing with history, right, is, is, is it highlights the 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 amazing and extraordinary paranormal folks right that that are out there right uh but it you know it does not do a good job at least on the surface i will not that's not to knock the field of history and any of my history fam that's out there you know who's doing amazing work and is also doing you know great scholarship in that field um i think on the initial onset right it's like when we think about black history months we think of you know malcolm x Dr. Martin Luther King, right? Rosa Parks, you know, we think about, you know, some of those, uh, you know, the bright historic, but there are so many that that don't get talked about, right? The, the supporters. And again, going back to, to my grandmother, Dee Dee, she was a huge support for me, uh, you know, to, to be doing what I'm doing now was... She didn't get to see that, right? She didn't get to to live that for herself. She get to she got to saw it from my for me, right? She get to you know she got she got to see it for me. <laughs> get my words right, um, it, you know. And in terms of you know me graduating with my doctorate, getting married, um, you know, she used to always pray this prayer, right? Of you know, oh God, just you know, give me one more, give me give me just a little bit more time to see this, to see this, you know. And you know, she would talk, you know, she would tell me the story about how she. Uh, you know, she prayed the prayer that, you know, God, give me enough, enough time to to see uh, Miho grow grow up, you know, just to, you know, to get into to grade school. You know, oh, God, please, please give me, you know, just a little bit more time to see Miho graduate from high school. Oh, God, give me just a little bit time more time to see Miho get married and have a kid. And so she at least got to see some of those things, right? Um, uh, before she passed, you know, she was 91 years old in 2009. And for me, that she was a historical figure. She impacted my life. Life. She, she affected me, right? And I, you know, and I miss her. Um, I miss her a lot. And uh, you know, and she's been gone, you know, uh, a long time, right? I mean, you think about it. 2009, uh, you know, 2019 was a decade, and now here we are coming up. Um, you know, here in uh, let's see, this is March, and she passed in March, in late March. So yeah, it's coming up here on you know 12 years. Um, that uh, she will have been gone, you know, from this, from this side of living, right? Um, so I, I, you know, I think about that a, a lot, and um, you know, it's why I mention her, and you know, it's like we think about Dia de los Muertos, you know, it is, um, you know, the memory of of people, right? The you know, allowing their memory to to continue. You know, keeping things uh, of theirs around. You know, we have a picture of Dee Dee. You know, in in our home. You know, and just her own. You know, I still use her cooking dishes, right? The things that she used, right? You know, and those things are special. Those are important to me. So I think about you know when I think about Black History Month, I think about the the broader circuit of life and the folks that don't get on the surface the credit that, that that is due for what they did the supporters the folks who just live the day in and day out life right the the ordinary life but yet made such an impact i mean th- that for me sticks out to me um in black history month um you know and i think about just you know the day ins and day outs just of 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 just us and just myself i don't you know i don't think of myself as just kind of this big old you know bigger than life persona and you know here's the thing i mean once upon a time i wanted that you know what i'm saying um i i strove for that i think that was kind of the awakening once once i got banned off twitter which i still am banned off twitter um right and i think for me that's that's the the big uh, the big one for me it was the the realization right that i 
am just a, a, a basic person. I'm not Elon Musk. I don't run SpaceX. I don't have a multi-billion or trillion dollar Fortune 500 company, right? I don't, you know, it's and, and oftentimes those are the folks, right, that get um, the accolades and they are the ones who get the, the mentions and they are the ones who are saying, oh, you're making such a difference in which, you know, hey, I'm sure they are. They, there's, there's no doubt about it, right? I think about the privatization of, of space travel, which is a whole nother conversation uh, that uh, that we could have and, you know, in regards to what that means. And especially with, what was it this last week, the, the Mars rover landed uh, on, on Mars. And I think about it and it, it hits me because it's like on one end, I love the scientific exploration. I love the, the movement, you know, towards finding life on other planets. Um, Though I've I've long contended that Mars, you know, had an ancient civilization, something horrific, you know, happened there. There's definitely evidence of that there on that planet. Um, you know, things don't have 90 degree angles in 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 uh, you know in the natural life. But anyways, again, that could be a whole show in and of itself. I don't want to sound like the UFO guy. My point being is is that you know this excavation cost hundreds of millions of dollars to put this 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 robotic piece out there you know and you know it's funny to me that you know when the US wants to do something it finds the money to do it um, and you know I think about the school systems here I think about you know folks fighting right now to go you know what you know there's a lot of people pushing you know and and, and the research is showing right that White communities, more affluent communities are pushing, you know, people to go back to school, whereas, you know, black parents, parents of color, Latinx parents are like, I don't know about that. Right. Because we're the ones that are that are most affected by covid. And so why would we want to put our kids back in that? I can tell you right now, our school district, you know, is, is doing a hybrid system. Um, we, we don't have our daughter, you know, back in school. So, again, I say all that to say couple of different things you know i think it's important to highlight the the day-to-day -day folks um just in life it's going to be interesting you know with you know with what what history looks like in 100 years from now uh with all the digital recordings and data um that we have now that didn't exist 100 years ago really i mean yeah we had photographs yes we had people writing stuff down um and, and, you know, and that goes on, you know, 2000 years from now, if civilization continues on the way it, it's supposed to continue on. Right. I, um, I, I you know, I'm, I'm I'd be curious just to see how how that is taken into account uh, with where we're at. You know, what where we have progressed since, um, you know, from that point, if we think about, you know, a thousand years from now, uh, because a thousand years ago, this this um, the technology we have just didn't exist, at least to what we know, to the extent of what we know, uh, did not exist. Right. We didn't have digital cameras, so we, we couldn't imprint. We couldn't record everything. I mean, think about the amount of sheer amount of data that exists out there of our moment in life right now. Um, it's it's crazy, right? It's crazy. So I think about that. I think about just um, the. I think about just you know what voices get highlighted, what voices get put out there, um, and get lifted up. I, I that's something that I've talked a lot about and and written about and you know <laughs> done plenty of talks about, uh, which is you know why I'm thankful for you know spaces like this on a podcast. Um, so anyways, I mean, those are just some things that, you know, I've been thinking about in regards to Black History Month. I mean, for me, like I said, it's an ongoing thing. I appreciate the time. I understand why we have Black History Month. I understand why it exists in February. Um, and, and you know, who some of our, uh, who some of the shoulders, I should say, you know, that I stand on. 
uh, which I think is really important uh, to recognize and to engage with. Um, so, yes, yes, here we are. We find ourselves right in the year 2021. And, uh, you know, COVID is still raging. You know, they asked a red report today that said, you know, we're nearing 500,000 dead. Um, and just the impact of that. Uh, there is madness going on in Texas, right? And right. Uh, the power lines are, 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 are still down in some places. The fact that the state, you know, did not prepare well for this. You got Ted Cruz's sorry ass um, that went out to Cancun and then tried to blame it on his kids. Like, oh, I was just trying to be a, a good dad. It's like, oh, fool, you wasn't trying to do all that. God damn it. <laughs> You was being a sorry ass, man. And, uh, you know, I mean, and that's not to say, right, on the other side of it, right, you got a, a Cuomo, Cuomo, you know, out in New York who's covering shit up, which is why I'm always just like, these metrics that we have on COVID, sometimes I question. I'm just like, are they all this? Is Are we really at these numbers? You know, CDC releases these these data reports. They, oh, these, these metrics are working. Like, well, based off of what? What sample size? Because, again, CDC gives these recommendations and they sound great on paper, but you try to make a fourth grader keep their mask on all damn day and 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 maintain a six foot distance. The next thing that comes up with that, right, is who gets to enforce those rules in the K through 12 environment. OK, if we're going to have that question, then the next question comes up is when those rules are broke, who <laughs> right, is getting the brunt of the discipline? And we know that from research, uh, these are black and brown kids. Yeah. And they are usually the ones that um, bear a brunt of this. In fact, uh, I had the privilege of editing a volume that just came out. Um, it's part of the Hip Hop Studies and Activism um, with Peter Lang, academic. It's called Hip Hop and Dismantling the School to Prison Pipeline. Uh, myself, uh, a good friend of mine, Don C. Sawyer, uh, Anthony Osella, and Ahmad Washington all edited this book. I got a good chapter in there with my man, um, Dr. Um, uh, here, I'm sorry, I'm looking up the, the chapter right now. Um, uh, I got, like I said, I got a chapter in here with my man, Travis Harris. Sorry, Dr. Travis Harris, who's been on the show before, uh, looking at the uh, the school to, to prison pipeline um, and looking at the pedagog pedagogical process for youth and juvenile detention centers. And I think it's important to, to, to look at some of the research and the data that exists out there. And this is a great book for that. I'll put the link in the show notes for it. Um, it is out now. Again, Hip Hop and Dismantling the School to Prison Pipeline. Um, it's... Uh, uh, it's a great read, um, and it's something that, again, when you think about disciplining kids, right, and we already know about these implicit biases, we know about these these biases that are built into educators, to disciplinarians, right, um, and that 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 says black women, and particularly black girls, are looked at, are seen as... Um, you know, as problematic, they need to be treated, as, you know, harsher. Um, you know, there's 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 a whole study around that, and so I think it's important to to ask those questions. And this is something I've been asking for a while. It's like, okay, who's going to enforce the rules of COVID, and then ultimately, who's going to pay the price, disciplinary, you know, from a disciplinary perspective, right? Uh, what was what's that racially going to look like? Because we already know black and brown kids are the ones who get in trouble, quote unquote, the most, right? Because of those biases, because because of those things that are built in to folks and how they look at particularly black kids. Um, so for me, again, it's a much more complex question than just going back 
and just being in the classroom and teaching, right? Uh, I get it sucks online. I mean, shoot, I, I don't like teaching that shit online, man. But it's at the end of the day, I'm also not trying to expose my family to shit because no one at this point, and we're starting to see more and more uh, uh, research turn up about the long-term effects of COVID. We don't know that shit right now. We don't know what the long-term effects are, but oh, it's just a cold. Man, they're finding lesions. They're finding brain damage. They're finding heart disease. Uh, they're finding people who have long-term loss of smell and taste. Long-term uh, um, lung uh, and breathing problems, right? Um, I know friends of ours right now who are experiencing those things. And then they had COVID, you know, um, uh, what is it? Um, coming up on a year, right? So, like, what, 10 months ago. So... There are some things that I think we have on the table right now that, yo, folks, we got to engage with. I mean, this is, for me, it's some serious shit. So, I'm, you know, I don't always have the answer. I'm, I, I ring the alarm a lot. I get that. And I think at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of alarms going off. Um, and I don't necessarily know what that means. I don't know what it means long term um, for Western society or at least how we interpret Western society. I don't know what that means um, long term for uh, how we do life. Right. It seems like, you know, as the weather is changing, just the weather alone is going to dictate how we live in the next decade. COVID is going to determine, right, how we live in the next decade. Um, you know, you can just look out at Texas and say, wow, this is something, this is something that, you know, and it's not just going to be once in a lifetime. I mean, I'm, I'm totally expecting on the flip side of that, right, this summer to be a brutal summer. And we continually see that, you know, each year these summers get hotter and hotter and hotter, right? Was it 2020? They were saying, that oh, was the hottest summer, you know, one of the hottest summers on record. And it's like, right, every year it's that. So we keep going up. So what will that leave us, right? Um, these are questions. These are genuine questions that I ask because this is probably going to be happening in my lifetime. Um, my daughter's, especially my daughter's lifetime. Uh, and if she so decides to have kids, it would definitely be affecting them. So... What do we do? I don't know. And that's for me where religion doesn't necessarily, you know, it's a good guidance in terms of how we cope, but for it to provide answers. And, you know, I know, what was it? Lent? Are we in Lent now? Or we, they, they had uh, Ash Wednesday. I don't, these are things and no disrespect to anybody out there who's, who, who does this and practices um, in, um, you know, all the things that they do with Lent and Ash Wednesday and everything. They, no disrespect to anybody. I've never done them. I, ne I never done them. And I think there's a place for them. I think there's, uh, you know, good reason for that. Um, you know, the meditative practices and, and whatnot. Uh, but for me, you know, to say, oh, God will save us. I, I don't know. And, and that's something that I've been questioning for quite a long time. Uh, especially the understanding and the nature of God. Uh, and in so much of it is related back to evangelical theology, which I have continually said is colonized um, and holds us. It, it suspends the, the, the proper process of thought and critical thought. Um, and so here we find ourselves, right? And some folks say, well, God will just have to help us. And so I think, you know, we got to take a much more active stance than that. Um, and just simply me taking my recycling out to the outside isn't just going to be, you know, the answer to that. So, 
I don't know, y'all. I don't know. I'm just saying we got we got some things. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to do was bring on uh, my friend uh, Pablo. Pablo and I have been friends for a long time. I think I met him through CCDA and organizations like that. And uh, but we really got the chance to know each other uh, when I moved to uh, Chicago. Uh, he was one of the first people I met uh, when I was the center director, right? Doing my youth ministry thing. And uh, he was working for Young Life. And even then, I was just like, bro, man, you got you got to get the hell out of that organization, man. Um, uh, but, you know, as with everybody, right, we got a process. We got a journey. We got, you know, get, we got time to, to figure things out. Uh, he's finally left. And I was like, bro, I got to get you on the show finally and just talk about that. Talk about your education, your life um, and why you left. Right. And it's part of, you know, this that that journey and experience. So this is really part one. And part two is going to be his spouse uh, talking about her experience um, and, you you know, being Gnostic, being, uh, you know, someone married to somebody involved in an evangelical outreach organization um, and then people who were trying to, you know, then, you know, resave her. Right. You know, especially when you make those type of announcements. Right. And in an organization such as Young Life, um, it, it, it can easily. Right. Uh, uh, you know, put that put the pressure back on that other spouse uh, because things have to be so neatly and orderly. Right. <laughs> you know, especially with an organization like that. And again, Young Life is just one of many. Um, I, I think, you know, for me, I'm you know, connected to Young Life because, you know, as you as many of you know, I used to work with Young Life um, and I still have, you know, connections. I know people who are still working for there. Um, but there's been a lot of ethnic minorities who have left that organization and just pissed. Right. Or have gotten fired, myself included, in, in with that shit. So um, there's some there's some things to contend with. And I wanted to, uh, to bring Pablo on and to talk about that. And just life and theology and just his own process in 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 finding who God is. And and I and I knew he wasn't gonna be able to do that while he was with the organization, right? Because those are the type of organizations, right, that you know, they make you sign shit and 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 fucking make you, you know, like that, you know, the, the minute you step out of line, out of that line, right? It's it it, you know, that's your ass. That's your job, that's your livelihood, right? Um and what a punk ass move to do, right, of an organization, but that's the standard to do. Um and so I was like, Well, let me wait till this fool gets out of there. And he finally was out, and I was like, shoot, we gotta have this talk. So part one is gonna be him. Uh part two will be his wife, uh his spouse, excuse me partner um anna uh and uh, i'll be talking with her next week uh and i wanted to put the two together because i i it, well first they're married and they're and they, and, and they have very unique perspectives and two uh i think their journeys are so great and i love particularly you know talking to uh, anna because her and i have never gotten a chance to really sit down and talk and, and y'all gonna love that conversation it's gonna be great um and particularly being the spouse of somebody um because as you know, that was that was that was Emily's the role for so long, right? Like once upon a time, she was the star, but then she gets married to me, and then she's kind of kind of got to take this back seat. But anyways, I'm still in that conversation. That's going to be next week. So part one this week, Pablo, check this conversation out. Next week, uh, his spouse is coming, Anna. But check this conversation out and just listen again, just to the process of what happened, and it's particularly trying to leave an organization uh, like this. It's not as easy as one would think. Enjoy this conversation, y'all, and keep thinking critically. Be safe. Um, and if you're in the Midwest, man, uh, make sure you got some, some some warm clothes on, some warm snow boots. All right, y'all. Peace. All right. 
All right, brother. Um, well, thanks for joining me, man. This is this is a real treat. Um, even Pablo, uh, not Pablo, even Gabe was texting me yesterday, be like, "Man, you gonna get that fool on there?" Man, I said, "Man, it's about damn time." Yeah, it's been. I've been there since the beginning, bro. Just uh, I think I've only missed probably like a handful of episodes listening to you to your journey here in the last few years. So, yeah, man. I mean, I was thinking of even when we started. You know, when you got this position in north park yeah remember remember seeing your mug on the website and i was like oh man i gotta reach out you hadn't even moved to chicago yet so <laughs> just, just remembering a little bit of of all that man i was just i was sitting back thinking trying to think like how long have i known pablo man it's been about a good because you we met when when i moved to chicago yes yeah yeah Okay. So you, okay. Was that 2010? Is that when that was? Oh 11? Lord, uh, 11, 2012. Because you were still a Young Life Airy director. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In Humble Park. In Humble Park, man. When, yeah. <laughs> Damn. Well, and you, I know you, uh, along with Gabe, have been longtime listener of the podcast, man. So it's just great to to finally have you on and and hooking this up, brother. Yeah. Glad to be here, man. Well, let me start out because I got a lot of questions for you, especially now that you are, are not an employee of, of Young Life. Um, yeah. I got, uh, so I'm wondering, brother, what, uh, what's been happening from birth to now? What has brought Pablo to be Pablo? You soon to be doctor, man. Yeah, yeah. May. May I graduate? Woo! You know, and Damn, really? I'll finish. Yeah. yeah. Wow, bro. For me, it's March 1st, man. I turn everything in March 1st, and then it's just finishing a class, which is, you know, pretty easy. Wow. Yeah. That's been a journey. Yeah, no no doubt, man. That I, I still remember you trying to finish up a master's, and here you are, man. This is, I'm so happy, man. I'm so happy. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah, so, man, you know, share a little bit about, you know, who you is, man. What's been going on from birth to now? Oh, yeah, man. Uh, born in Argentina, 1980. Mm. So, um, okay. So a, d a different kind of 80s baby, I guess. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant, but I've reflected a lot on the different type of immigrant story that I have just because of privilege, bro. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, two college educated parents. In Argentina, it's a five-year undergrad that's equivalent of what masters are here. Okay. So, so college-educated parents were kind of the downtown business people, bivocational, but you know, working full-time, but in ministry. You know, since I was in in the womb, my parents were youth leaders, uh, deacons, a whole piece, bigger church, and then the economy just tanked, inflation whole bunch of stuff as a lot of Latin American countries. And yeah. in 1990, when I was nine, uh, you know, I was nine, so I didn't know. All of a sudden, we're moving to, in my head, the land of video games, bro. Because <laughs> <laughs> my dad was a network engineer, and okay. he used to go to the U.S. to get training. And yeah. He's, he's, yeah, he speaks like five languages. Uh, Damn. And, uh, and so, yeah, man, so I was, like, excited. You know, it was, we were, you know, we're doing well over there. Everything's paid off. The house, the car. Okay. I was reflecting back. I was like, dang, I was I was that little private school kid learning how to wear a suit in first grade and and learning how to write with a fountain pen. Yeah. It was a it was a different start, right? So, 
uh, left that, but we do have a lot of parallels with the immigrant entering into mm-hmm. the country, no network or very little network. My dad went from one suit every day with a private secretary bringing him coffee, you know, gender roles there, but still that's what it was. And, uh, and then he, his first job was cleaning toilets at Pizza Hut or Domino's. Wow. At Domino's. wow bro. Um, not even making it, sharing a room and, a, and a, you know, having his own mattress, no bed, that, that whole story. And, but then because of his education and, and, you know, he also came in as 31, two or three or so years old, uh, quickly got a, you know, computer type job and then started yeah. working for the Santa Barbara County because that's where we landed. Okay. Okay. Um, he started so, that. We were we were okay, but I do remember we wouldn't have had furniture or beds or anything if it, if it wasn't for uh, the first Southern Baptist Church in Lompoc, California and all those lovely white people that uh, that uh, fight, reflecting back, there there were some there were some people that put their privilege on the line, and we probably wouldn't be in the in this country if it wasn't for that. So wow, um, it came to head in 1994, um, and uh, and it was we either going back or we get a uh, residency card because we were on work visas, just my dad. Okay, and uh, and that's when when all those people put their their neck on the line, and they were. You know, they still talk every once in a while and reflect back. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how hard it was going to be. I mean, it was a suburban, small town, military context with no diversity other than Latinx community that only speaks Spanish and, um, you know, uh, the English speaking white people and uh, and Southern Baptist. So you can add all Hmm. the theological conservative stuff in there, too. Yeah. But. The reason we got the visa or the residency card was because my dad and mom started and planted a church, Spanish speaking church, immigrant, Central American, uh, you know, and they called it uh, Familia de Dios, I think it was. Okay, right? okay. So I grew up in that context, uh, bivocational, in church all the time. My dad commuted to work mm. an hour away. And, you know, looking back, I, loving home, loving parents. Yeah. Um, finances were never lacking even though my parents felt a difference there you know uh crying themselves to sleep at night for the first year all the time because of missing family don't know if we're going to make rent that kind of stuff um but the the way i experienced it after you know going through eight years of therapy was that i became the cultural interpreter that had to have this exceptional brilliance of understanding this complex new world to explain as a young kid to explain to adults because my safety was was threatened Mm. Uh, my parents didn't understand the full context i'm the oldest and so i constantly felt the weight of uh explaining things to my parents otherwise we're gonna fail we're gonna go under wow so so there's a lot of trauma in that um now that I understand as immigrant trauma, and, and that's not really talked about um, much, but um, yeah, in the research field, that's that's coming up and, and building a pretty big snowball going downhill. So anyways, uh, yeah, I went to high school and I, I say uh, I was a glitch in the system consistently because nobody, I didn't have a guide, right? Who knows how to deal with a non-Central American immigrant, college educated parents, college degrees don't fit here. They don't understand how to 
do all of the college stuff to get me to the right place. So right, consistently, right. it was like, oh shit, I should have done that. Now I don't have what I should have had. What right. I should have had. So with college, I got the opportunity to get um, ROTC. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, and I went through the whole process. But this is 19, 1998. You know, computers were <laughs> lagging. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, and, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. So the glitch in the system, bro, was that they didn't realize I wasn't a citizen, uh, and so I I was past all the deadlines. Yeah, I was accepted, but they couldn't accept me to become an officer because I'm not a citizen. Uh-huh. Design. So uh, glitch in the system. I go into the military enlisted. I'm supposed to wait. So I, I went to the United States Air Force. I was there for four years, um, and. Uh, and I went enlisted, not air, not officer. And man, you know, the culture of immigrants is the world is not safe. So even though I let my kids run outside in our own home countries, I'm helicoptering everything. I'm not letting them risk for nothing. So I didn't I didn't really learn how to risk and, and learn from my mistakes. And so here I am, this, you know, I would say talented 18 year old going in and the military just fit right angles do this you get that right mm-hmm. so i got promoted quickly i got authority and power and influence quickly and i and i blew up man my pride out out the window uh lost all kinds of relationships got in trouble with the law in the military out of the military wow you know, just walked away from my faith uh fully because i was like i could do this that without realizing that that's what i was saying but that's what i was saying mm-hmm. Lot, lying to my parents, lying to everybody. And um, yeah, it came down to a halt when I got into a lot of trouble and I kind of left the military after four years with nothing Mm. other than hard lessons and and needed some time to detox from not drugs, not alcohol, but patterns in my life. Yeah. Um, So what do I do? (laughs) I become super Christian legalistic. (laughs) Is that right? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was no buffer Uh for maybe or gray or or risk. Everything was too risky. Okay. Everything was, if I go down that line, I will end up in jail again. Yeah. Um, And I did that in youth ministry. So I stumbled into youth ministry because my parents, you know, they uh their youth leaders left and they're like hey you know you grew up in this just now they're in their second church plant in the covenant uh they started a second church in a similar neighborhood in in isla vista california by ucsb okay and um they did that for 10 years and and i came in like three or four years in it was more of a ccda model yeah um that's when my my dad started learning about that and i came in and i'm all legalistic from the military so my strategy, my my pastoral strategy was, I say you do or else. <laughs> With all these knucklehead kids that are now friends of mine, you know, we joke about how oh, I took man. the youth group from like 40 kids to three. Yeah. And I had to go apologize to every single parent. That, mm-hmm. was a, that was a hard lesson. And man, right around that time, I enter Westmont College, man. Westmont. Montecito. Okay. California, yeah, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. to Oprah's estate, with a whole <laughs> bunch of whole bunch of people in the that were celebs, and like literally go to the Safeway, you know, to the grocery store, and yeah. you see c- celebrities just shopping. 
I know, man. Uh, yeah, L.A. is a trip, man. Southern California is a trip like that. Yeah, bro. So so you can imagine, right, like this uh, this kid that didn't know how to interpret multicultural settings because everything's unsafe, wasn't taught how to do that, got into a lot of trouble, became legalistic. Then I go to a conservative, evangelical, 90, at the time it was like 92 or 93% white, wealthy okay. kids. Okay. And and I'm, I'm the dude that, you know, is working 30 hours a week, volunteering. Uh, so nobody's working 30 hours a week there. <laughs> Going to school full time. <laughs> and in class, I'm raising practical situation questions because they're talking about theology and really now having a master's in this stuff and, you know, a lot more years. I'm like, they were... They were teaching me white male conservative theology as this yep. is the way you yep. think, are, and do. Yeah. So I didn't know. I was just excited that I was getting to study this faith that saved me again, right, out of yeah. all the shit that happened. And and I was just raising questions like, that doesn't really apply in Isla Vista 15 miles down the road when it applies everywhere. Um well, tell me then, because here's my situation. And so there was a lot of 45 minute classes where it was a conversation between me and the professor for 20 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I wasn't arguing. I was just trying to understand. That's Absolutely. Um, so go through that double major computer science. Uh, um, I'm an overachiever slash workaholic. Right. So there's a fine line. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um Anyways, I, I end up going to UIWI in 03, and I start hearing this thing called relational ministry. I was like, <laughs> no, it's I say you do. <laughs> what do you mean relational? Fell man. in love with it, of course, people and relationships. And I was there in 03, man. We probably passed each other, were? man. Yeah. <laughs> man, 03. Yeah, that was my first year, bro. Yes, sir. And and I don't know what it is. It's probably something cultural. But I was like, Larry's leading this. Larry Acosta, cool. Um, yeah. I get on the phone the yeah. following week, and I was like, I need you to mentor me. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like four hours away, and he he kind of chuckled and he said, If I'm a mentor, you're driving here. All right, I'm driving there. <laughs> so Larry Larry Acosta mentored me for a few months, and and that was impactful because that. That he introduced me to Young Life. When I did a semester in San Francisco, I meet Alberto Cuellar. Oh yeah, I, I meet yeah. Tony Gonzalez. Yep. I meet all these like heroes of Young Life. Right, right, uh, right. Unsung heroes. Um, yes. Of Young Life. Yes. And um, and I start learning about that my faith can actually interact with my culture. There's an overlap. Um, so that blew my mind. I read Orlando Crespo's. Um, being Latino in Christ. Okay, all right. Blew my mind. I mean, it's Puerto Rican, dude, but like the the language of the mixing of culture and and faith actually uh, reminded me fondly, like at a deep, intimate level of the Sunday afternoon, the Sunday morning get there, set up yeah. in this place that you don't own. You, you do church for like three hours, then you hang out for lunch, and then you do another three hours of soccer and whatever. Yep. That faith. Yep. Yep. That faith um, brought life back to this white theology that I that I had, you know, not at a doctor level. Here's what it was doing. It was murdering me. Wow. I can't say it any softer because when you're trying to fit as a minority into majority culture, you get stress. Right. 
Right. And then it's high stress, and then it's high stress over time, and that equals trauma, and trauma lowers your life expectancy. Yeah. So that's murder. So yeah, yeah. That, that was the first inkling that I was like, oh, shit, uh, this feels good at least, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So me and my wife during that semester, this is 06. Okay. Um, when did you get married, by the way? I, I forgot to ask. Yeah, so, so yeah, met in 06 and got married in 08. Okay. Uh, a few months out of out of, out of uh, college, and um, man, bro, she's white, suburban, middle upper class, and and I started to experience some deep ass racism, man. Okay. Uh, okay. And you know, I'm not gonna get into all that, but like, I didn't know it was that. I just knew I was angry, right? Yeah. And I'm trying to like interact with with this new culture that's not my family. It's not this thing out here, you know? And I had, I would have not called a lot of things racism back then. I would have just called mis, like misunderstandings, cultural misunderstandings and, and, and that kind of stuff. But it's straight up white supremacy and racism. Yeah. Not just, not just that, but the college and other things as I reflect back. But we moved to Chicago. We get married. The Young Life calls me, moved to Chicago to start an area, right? And it's all wonderful in my head we're moving to an urban context we both want to do that we both want to do urban ministry we're in our first year of marriage or just just finishing our first year of marriage we moved to chicago and bro i quit three months in really people don't know that i, yep. I didn't i didn't you're right i didn't yeah and so in and in, in the short of it is it's a, it's a good story in the, in the end but the process sucked because i get there and I don't know nothing, you know, I was a volunteer youth pastor. I do have an undergraduate degree yeah. Yeah. In, in urban youth leadership, um, or no, urban leadership in theology. And um, we get there and, I, and even though I had started my own business, web development, I did that for 10 years, but, but I didn't like lead a large business and I didn't know cash flow and budget and projections, that kind of stuff, MBA kind of stuff. So I get there, I just know they're gonna give me a paycheck. That was the first time I was gonna be paid for ministry ever. Yeah. And, yeah. and then I have an $84,000 budget. Okay. And I get one hour of fundraising training and you know <laughs> what it is. It's right, so, right. So I, I, they did connect me with some people of wealth but they didn't understand that those people of wealth had racist ideologies as filters into exactly. thinking how I could steward money, right? Exactly, exactly. But I took derivative calculus, all right? So I know how to do math. So I knew by adding up numbers, I don't care how many people I ask, I am not getting to this number. Yep. And in three months, I will fail. So I'm out now. I'm not stupid. I'm out now. I'm going to look for a job now. Yeah. So I, I will say I, I called um, I called uh, Angel Ruiz, another unsung hero uh, that is no longer with Young Life, but he he was part of my onboarding process, and I called Wiley Scott. Oh yeah, you know him. Yeah, and he he was he was over over multicultural ministry at the time, and I was like, hey, blah blah, what I just told you, and they're like, hell no, uh, are you all willing to move? Because if your director doesn't you know, your state director doesn't, or at the, at the time it was regional director, doesn't um, doesn't do something for you. We got six other cities that want you. And I'm like, I'm in, I will move. I mean, we've only been here three months. So, um, so but you know, to, to Brett Herzma's um, credit, 
he's like, I don't, I don't understand this, but we're going to fix it. And he walked with me and that ministry grew. I mm. had access to wealth. Of course I had access to wealth and that made the finances happen, but we ended up hiring like 15 young Latino Puerto Ricans for the most part in this Latino student staff um, program. I use the term Latinx now, right? But that's what the program was called. And um, and yeah, man, it was it was dope um, emotionally, relationally, but spiritually and practically, man, I burnt out. Mm. And I was getting patted in the back. And yeah. my marriage was suffering. And my first son was being born and my wife didn't want kids. Uh, and and I met the CCDA and I learned about racism. Okay. Shit. Okay. When did you first go to CCDA? Uh, oh, nine. Oh, okay. Okay. And All I right. heard Richard, I heard the late, amazing Richard Twist. Mm-hmm. Died way too young. And it was about, he was interpreting the gospel with cultural native language, this young Indian boy. Mm-hmm. I was born out of one of these tribes. Uh, and nobody was worthy of tying his moccasins. And I was just everything was blowing up for me. And so I entered the cohort, the leadership cohort, learn about racism. And then I looked around, bro. And, and I realized that everything I was eating, breathing, hearing was toxic. Wow. Uh, and, and I almost lost my marriage during that time. Wow. Uh, because of that, because I looked at my wife and she represented everything that I hated. Mm. Uh, right. Like she's white, white culture, everything in our, in our walls was, was uh didn't did not represent Argentina, you know? The language that we were communicating was not Argent was not Spanish. The the cultural values were not Latin. And 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 I was I mean I say the word hate because that was a feeling, right? But really what it was was I was suffocating. Mm-hmm. I was I was dying. I was burning out and and nobody, bro, nobody taught me how to be emotionally healthy in the process and deal with the anger. Nobody, nobody, it was all, all this bullshit about Christian reconciliation, man. And how wonderful is it that you both get to reconcile? Now I had trauma. Yeah. You, you can't talk me through trauma, through scripture. Like, what's that gonna do to heal me? I need an EMDR, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, there you go, there you go. And and if you don't know what EMDR is, and and, and if this is resonating, y'all need to look into it if you're listening. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, man, so like got got into therapy for the first time. That helped. That didn't, that started to heal, but not really. Uh, it just it just opened me up to being um, open to not Jesus as the thing, the one or entity or whatever that heals everything, but the, but practical tools in humanity that help guide towards healing, like yeah. therapy, right? Yeah. I was at, I still had those legalistic and the name of Jesus, this and that. Well, yeah. and you will win, no yeah. matter what. Um, and just practically, categorically, research says that is not true. Not just my lived experience. So, uh, yeah, man. So, moved to Denver, right? And I meet Art Williams, uh, another unsung hero of Young Life that is no longer in Young Life. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a, he, he's kind of like you, you met him, right? Like half, half Mexican, half black. 
uh, a lot of black urban culture yet led like a Latinx collectivist family guy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I moved and we started tearing up together. It was so, so fun. However, he was the first one that told me, what the hell are you doing? I'm paying you for 40 hours a week. Don't work 41. Your life is a mess. We're going to fix it. And if he wouldn't have done that, probably would have lost my marriage again. Hmm. Around that time, we had our second kid. Anna has postpartum depression. Okay. Um, we're in a new city, and now she has some people that she knows here in Denver. But, man, like, I was producing for the master helicrops, bro. Mm -hmm. And I was getting no, no promotions, not paid well. And I didn't know any better. I was just enjoying the work. So it wasn't all bad, but I want to keep on presenting this like double-edged sword, right? Right, right. Because I still got paid and it was better than Chicago culturally and it was a squad and they're all still my friends, you know, and we built it up and got to do a lot of stuff. But um, but yeah, man, we, we started to ask the wrong questions. Don't ask the damn system and power and finances questions. Yeah. And try to restructure questions, right? And we started to realize, we asked this question, bro. If Young Life in 1938 through 41 was started by a poor teen mom, young black woman, what would it have looked like? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> great question. Great question. So, you know, uh, it we, we started change structure and that was, everybody was like, enjoying that we had doubled and tripled ministry numbers. Mm -hmm. But when we started talking about racism and white supremacy, even racial minorities were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and then, man, then we were split up, bro. Because, you know, there's a small pool of talented racial minorities in all white dominant ministries. So somebody got to get promoted, but now you split up the crew. So now you silo them, man, and that's a strategy of white supremacy, whether you know you're doing it or not. Right, right. Divide and conquer. So Art Williams goes to the division, the divisional role, and he's doing some good work. And I and I double, you know, I don't double, but we double in Denver, go from like six to eight staff. We we go up to 20 staff, 18 staff. And, and we're like hardcore going on restructuring and reworking things. We start this leadership program, blah, blah. But bro, like he was alone and I was alone. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have my partner, he didn't have his partner and he's that sales, big personality in the room, but I'm the put that room together and break it down and structure and teaching and process and whatever, right? Yeah. So now I didn't have somebody, I had to do both jobs and, and there you go. It's not nonprofit work, it's white supremacy, let's call it what it is. And, and I burnt out, bro, I burnt out because uh, I was starting my doctorate because I didn't have the tools to do organizational change and think about power and inclusion, diversity, and equity at that level. And that's when I went to um, start at USC in, in the fall of 18. Um, and bro, that's that's when my world changed. I, I, I hadn't experienced God in such a deep way as when I stepped onto the campus of USC. Hmm, how so? Like a, I can't fully explain it yet, but here's the words I got so far. Mm. So I literally stepped there and I felt like my world got really big in a good way, like I could breathe. Okay, all right. And as I as I walked and tried to, you know, cover all my mocos that were like, <laughs> literally I was walking everywhere 
And I was like, shit, because bro, you know what it was is that I didn't have to fight white Christian male cis supremacy. Yeah. Because nobody was talking that way. Everybody yeah. was talking research says, everybody was talking the real world outside of Christian bubble. Right. And I didn't have to explain myself. I still felt like I had to hide my Christianity. Uh, and at the time I wouldn't, I would say I would have no called myself a Christian by religious religion definitions of that. I had already processed leaving evangelicalism and all the toxicity there, but um, yeah, bro, it was, it was freeing and I've experienced this freedom. And what happens when a marginalized person experiences freedom is they don't want to go back. <laughs> they don't want to go back to slavery shit. Right. And now, now here, here's one of the horrible things about Christianity. We have, we are literally in the business of making shit up and calling it truth. Yeah. Bro, that is so fucked up when it comes to, can I cuss? Can I, can Dude, I, this, this profane I, faith, man, come on. <laughs> I uh, I think Jesus cussed, so I'm just you know. Oh, I know, I know Jesus threw down with the with the four letter words. Come on, <laughs> that's right. So yeah, bro, like I I was not going back, and and I started to have power, which flips flips the tables, right? I like the like the parable, uh, not parable, like the story says, because all of a sudden you I, I'm not making shit up. I'm telling you how it is, and it's not even my opinion. So I don't want your opinion. I want you to talk about research. Yeah. But the Christian world doesn't deal with research. We deal in making shit up. Yeah. And calling the truth. Yeah. But when most people in power are white and male, we're dealing with white male truth. Well, we're dealing with Western white male truth. And when they point to their research going back to fucking Calvin and Martin Luther, who are not all wrong, but they were privileged white males lawyers, etc., then you're dealing with several uh, positionalities of power, ident social identities of power that are now, this is truth, and we point back to it as truth. So we build on white supremacy uh, theologically. And so when that was on the current research way back when, and now I'm using new research, right, because we develop as humans, uh, People don't know what to do with it. So then you get the white racial identity development process of like, oh, shit, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to squash this mm. or I'm going to get angry or I'm just going to like gaslight it. Right. So and we were in Denver. We were like, hey, theology is not about sacrifice because perpetual sacrifice for people of color theologically is actually abuse and death. So we're going to talk about theological liberation as the way we do everything, staff development, work with kids being around people and bro liberation is a cuss word as you know in evangelical circles yeah let alone when you're systematizing them when you give people ten thousand dollar raises because you've been underpaying them forever and instead of saying i gotta raise enough hell no i'm not raising that you are raising it if you want this here and then you bring research that says how inequitable this is and then you call that sin structural sin so imagine those contexts right yeah Going yeah. from pet to, to threat, as Soon Chan puts it. So, bro, last year, so I start my my doctorate program and I'm doing my dissertation, all my reading on Young Life. And the whole point was to stay for a long time, right? Talking about 
new potential positions, etc. And yeah, like it's one of those like, as I go into this part of this story, you know, I'm an inclusion, diversity and equity expert and CEO of a consulting company that's blowing it out of the water. And that's not a pat on the back. That's just stats, right? Yeah. And as I go into this, I know that a lot of my contexts and contacts are white Christian money. So how I phrase what I'm going to phrase next is either going to be it's going to put people in fight, flight, freeze, and that could cause harm to the, the food that I could provide in my own actual table, in my mm-hmm. own home. So I say that to preface it, I'm not going to change what I'm going to say. I'm going to, I'm putting it on the listener. If you're in fight, fly, or freeze, I would ask you to self-reflect on why the hell what I'm saying that is just data and facts and research is causing you to retract or, or, or fight me or something, right? And that's the work that I do. But, but what happened was I was in my dissertation on Young Life and last year, about a year ago, they, they, they say, we can, you can't do it here because it's personally identifiable information. I get it. I'm an executive leader. I, get, I coach CEOs that are making $1.5 million. Right? I get executive leadership. We can't do that. But the thing is, like, we weren't doing that. You know, bro, it's the doctoral process. If I create personally identifiable information, I fail out of the program. <laughs> I can't, yeah. It won't go past yeah. IRB, right? Right. And you're right. part of an IRB process, so, um, so you would have you would have told me no. So, uh, so I that's when I started being like, what what's happening? Uh, I don't understand what's happening, and um, so I can't do it. I I still don't don't get the why because I was not given a reason outside of that and. And that was unfortunate. And, you know, like the good entrepreneur that I am, thank God, I get a, a high tech company to take me up on it. And and that months later was the primary contact contract that launched me into full time work. But that that framework was when COVID happened mm-hmm. at the same time. So I was supposed to be a DEI director um, for a division. And because of restructuring, because of lack of finances and planning a lack of finances, I wasn't able to get that position. I get it top down. I I know people's heart wasn't in the wrong place. However, I will say that that was white supremacy. How are you going to not prioritize inclusion, diversity and equity as you restructure? Yeah, absolutely. Right. That's called sin, sin and sin, (laughs) not inclusion, diversity and equity. That is structural sin from a culture of sin. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that was, that was, that was it for us. I mean, it was, it was like a year of no, 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 no behind a year of toxic white supremacy. So, um, yeah. And bro, during that time, like I'm, I'm 10, I was 10 years into young life. So what phone calls am I getting from around the country? All the hurt racial minorities in the same situation without the doctoral understanding of systemic racism and all these things. Right. And they were like, I don't know what to do. So what, what do us culturally collective racial minorities do? We bear each other's burden. I couldn't do it anymore mm-hmm. because I knew it wasn't changing. I knew it wasn't changing. So, you know, I'm sure if, if young life leadership's listening right now, they're like, ah, I'm changing it. I'm ch- we're changing it. They have this, this and that, I'm like, and you know, I know too damn much to know 
what works and what doesn't work from research and evidence-based solutions, not just in the US, but globally. That's my research, global research on what works systemically. And, and I know where it's going, it's predictive. Like if it, if it was a lottery, I'd be a million, multimillionaire right now, because I know exactly <laughs> what's about to happen. Uh, and it's, you know, it's again, I just pointed back to this cultural depravity of thinking that they know best. That's a nice perspective. That's an interesting perspective. Let me try to take three bullet point notes and try to do it when the reality is research shows that you need structural power and an expert guy to do this well. And the church at large and churches, uh, wherever they are, they don't have DEI experts that know organizational change to understand what comes next. The IRS doesn't hire nonprofit leaders to do an IRS audit, right? We need IRS experts to do an IRS audit in this complex as fuck IRS tax law. Well, let's not talk about multicultural nothing when our history is not multicultural theology, when our power dynamics are all white and male, and when we don't have the tools to actually go from point A to point B. It hasn't worked before. So why the hell are we thinking that we can do it without understanding what the fuck is actually happening, right? Right. So, yeah, man, Anna and I would have probably given Young Life another decade, bro. Not probably, that was our language. If things would have worked out, but we know we're not going into a sinking ship. Yeah. Like, we know if we go that way and we done told you, this is not gonna work. I don't want to say it's all negative. One of my closest friends, JL Chambers, is a CEO at a Philly and inclusion, diversity and equity company and Young Life National currently is under contract with him. So um, I don't know what will happen, but uh, I trust him. So but that's just a consultant. You just come in and give recommendations. So, yeah, bro. Um, So I, I felt alone and isolated. I was. I was dealing with racial trauma from white supremacy in young life. And, and you know, I didn't even point the finger at young life. I put the finger at white supremacy and I don't point the finger at white supremacy in young life. That was just my experience. There's, I'm not unique in that experience. It's racial minorities in every white led Christian ministry. And if anybody says, no, 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 no. I'll just ask you, do you have a research-based methodology and have you done an audit with recommendations that have evidence-based solutions that are not just US-based, because we we are a global country, but global cultural values inserted into your systems, processes, and culture. No? Cool, so you're doing it wrong. I don't wanna hear it. You know what I mean? Not from a prideful way, but just like, I've done what hasn't worked, I've read what hasn't worked in the last 20 years, and I've seen what has worked, I've lived it out, um, and I'm only going that way, otherwise, ah, that's just bad business, bro let alone going back to my murder comment it's murdering people man yeah so so yeah we left in september scared as fuck bro (laughs) yeah i'm sure absolutely (laughs) oh god scared and and now you know uh thriving culture llc is is thriving bro we're about to hire people this year, over the next 18 months, we'll probably hire three to five full-time people and forming good partnerships. I'm breathing 
and, and one of the things I'll say this, and then you know, you said from from birth to now, I've been talking about all kinds of different stuff, but uh, I'll say that my wildest dreams while I was in Young Life and for the first couple of months outside of Young Life, I thought were I thought were actually my wildest dreams. But when you're suffocated, your wildest dream is to breathe. Yeah. So now I'm out and I'm dreaming way bigger. And I'm seeing how much bigger the world is than Christian ministry and Christian context. So right. my right. wife is happy. We're, we're experiencing joy and laughter like I have never experienced it while in ministry. And uh, my kids are thriving. We're having great. And we have a great life, bro. This is how it's supposed to be. Well, let me let me ask this. This is, and I appreciate you, man, sharing like that. I mean, I got I got so many questions in regards to your experience because I think you know part of the problem is is that you know organizations of Young Life, and I don't mean to you know to, to put Young Life completely on the chopping block. I mean, I would say any really evangelical outreach organization mm-hmm. um, in general uh, is is white focused, even if you have on the face people of color there's still white supremacy embedded into that yeah and i always fear man i i was you know i mean i always fear for women but primarily women of color and ethnic minorities mm-hmm. who enter organizations like young life because it has done nothing but chew and spit people out since i've known about it for the last 26 28 years uh you know um and when you read the archives, right, when you talk to people who have mm-hmm. been in it for a long time, these are the same conversations niggas was having back in the 70s, right? You oh, know, yeah. and so I always just get tired, man, of having the same goddamn conversation. And I'm actually at a point now where I'm just like, I'm done having the conversation. Like, there's plenty. Yeah. I, you know, I've come to the realization that and this, you know, for me was after the 2016 election, right? It was like, white folks just don't give a shit. And like you said, they will keep you as a pet. If you're a threat, they will fire you. They will, you know, re, you know, and like you said, divide and conquer. I mean, how many, I mean, how many areas do you have where, you know, you got the white boy club and stuff, man? Or you got like all these networks and shit and people working together. But with ethnic minorities, they're always split up. And the excuse is given, well, you know, you're talented and you got to go build that team. Like, man, fuck that. And that's the, that's the thing that drove me nuts about Young Life. Um... And the way they, I mean, you were obviously a great uh, fundraiser and stuff. I was not. I, 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 I failed tremendously at that. And I know that's a big part of, right, nonprofit organizations, right, is figuring out the funding. Um, for you, man, I, what, where, where are you at, you know, I guess I should ask, because, again, I, I've known you for so long, man. What was the genesis then behind leaving um, that organization? Like, what, you know... Like you said, you would have given them another 10 years and stuff, man. And and what advice with that? What advice do you have for folks who are still there? And I mean, yeah. and what I mean by that, I mean people of color. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's no different than the than the executive coaching that I give people of color in for-profit, non-profit, Christian or not, right? Um it's uh, you got to center the most marginalized people group in any solution. And you got to do it through a framework of liberation. Now that sounds theologically based, but that actually works with different language in the for-profit context. When you center what hasn't been centered, 
then the solutions become different, right? So uh, I started this coaching process of, I mean, it, it's a learning modality, right? When you when you have learned, and I don't mean no disrespect to any racial minority, I've included myself in there and I'm still working through this. It's a system of slavery, psychological warfare, traumatized for us to self-identify as something we are not and try to achieve something we're not, therefore perpetual failure. And here's what I mean. Our learning process is we don't know what we don't know first, right? So you gotta make people aware of what they don't know. And then they understand, oh, I'm not even competent in all this reality that I didn't even know. And then you gotta give them the tools to engage within that new reality so that they can get to subconscious competence and they could just be, right? So you got all these people out there that are leaders in ministry and have succeeded in a lot of ways, 54 year old black, brown and otherwise non-white leaders of major organizations that have never processed their racial identity and that they are still out on the field working for maybe a bigger paycheck, but dying, literally shortening their lifespan. So there's a lot of like, trauma-informed process in that, right? Because now I'm thinking like, dang, if I if I go all the way in right now, who's gonna be all triggered and get fucked up for the next three months because trauma and all this cortisol stays in our body for a long time and that yeah. is not okay unless we process it. So I wanna be careful what I, what I actually say. So it's very individualized and trauma-informed in the process, but it's really like, I don't care who you are unless it's, unless people have started an organization with inclusive, equitable framework into systems, processes, and leadership, it is the exact opposite period. So wherever you are, young life, crew, whatever, you are a slave in some way, shape, or form, and don't get duped into thinking that a paycheck that's better than before is more than what it actually is, which is breadcrumbs, and you're in the hole of death, honestly, and we call it ministry. So now, so now it'd be like, all right, if you even as a racial minority are listening and you even think that's part of your reality, now, now, now is the time to learn and be like, well, what does that mean? What do I read? Who do I connect with? Because if you haven't read and connected with those people, then you're just like drinking and sipping on the fine wine of white supremacy and you don't even know it's poison, right? So. So if you're a person of color, start to, I mean, it depends on where you're at, right? If, you, if you've only read white supremacy books, regardless of the author, uh, get, get you some mentors. Yeah. Uh, start to understand something different that's going to wake your ass up. And, and, and I, man, hit me up. Of course, if I get hit up by 20 people, I, I'm, you know, it trickles out. But like... That's what I live for right there is the liberation of those that are dying. And bro, it's trauma, right? So guess what? If we're shortening the lifespans, then for the gospel, we're causing generational curses because we now know that trauma passes on from generation to generation via DNA. Yeah. So white supremacy is toxic to your kids and grandkids. So so whatever your motivating factor is, we got to re redirect this generational curse to start, start to learn how you are a slave so that you can start to be liberated is what I would say. And then, you know, everybody's process is going to be different. Yeah. 
Well, and that, and that's yeah, no, and I and, and that's just it. I mean, I get it. I mean, I also think you know there's the the toxicity of just evangelical Christianity that you know I mean it begins to operate itself, right? I mean, you don't even need. It's kind of like the uh, the Willie Lynch, you know, letter. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with the Willie, you know, whole Willie Lynch process, right? It's like. Yeah. You know, you only need a few guards, you know, for thousands and thousands of people, right? Because the ideology keeps you going, right? Well, this is what God wants me to do, and this is what God... And that's why I'm like, man, we got to give up evangelicalism, man, and move away from that shit, because that shit keeps people at at bay, docked with toxicity and, and shit, really, um, without moving on, right? Without just saying, okay, this is... This is not a good space for me. Um, and, yeah. you know, and, and again, I get it. Everybody's got to make their own move. I, I get that, you know, some folks really feel, I, and I include myself in this, man. It, it took me getting fired for me to really realize, man, this was, this was mm. toxic for me, man. This was, this was yeah. not good. Um, <sighs> and here's what I would say. One, one other thing, bro. Yeah, put it I out there. The phone. I was on the phone yesterday with with uh, a you know I don't know what their title exactly was or is or whatever, but within a major white evangelical ministry. And here's the thing: this is what I said in response to something that happened. Uh, hey, director or whatever, um, I just want to let you know you're talking about fantasy right now, so I'm gonna tell you reality. And here's reality: you just broke the law. You literally just broke the law with discrimination towards this thing. Uh, so you, you should know that. Two, uh, your supervisor took you to break the law towards racial discrimination and you call and they called it ministry. And three, you uh, you are in sin of white supremacy because it was a discriminate race discrimination yeah. thing. Yeah, you're in sin. So like, you shouldn't lead according to your own theology because you're in perpetual sin. You're also breaking the law. So now your family and you is in is in jeopardy. And because you work for a nonprofit, if you're breaking the law, guess what? Your five hundred one c three is on the chopping block. So everybody, and and here's the thing, like. Christian leaders don't get this. There is racial discrimination, gender discrimination, and all kinds of other shit that's breaking the law in your own churches and ministries, and you don't know it, and you think a reconciliation process is going to help it when there needs to be a legal process. And now that the administration has changed, and I don't necessarily have have like all my hope on the administration or nothing, but it changes culture when you start doing executive orders and, and hiring people of color and it just changes culture subconsciously, right? So this thing is just gonna keep on growing. People are gonna get more educated and there's gonna be start to be class action lawsuits against um, against churches and ministries that can't say me making shit up is good enough, is no longer good enough. Hmm. Because imagine all those undergraduate students that are getting critical race theory and all these things, just regardless of race, they're learning this academically. They're they're about it outside of the classroom in, in different ways. It's no longer going to be like subservient. Yes, lower my head. It's going to be like this. I don't give a fuck because I'm 23. This is a lawsuit. 
Yeah. So I for real expect over the next 30 years, there's going to be some major lawsuits in uh, Christian organizations, regardless of size. And I have read also that there's a there's a push legally to stop allowing non-disclosure agreements within organizations when those non-disclosure agreements are race and gender related. So because yeah. right now they're using non-disclosure agreements to shove this all into the carpet and exactly. then changes. Yes. Yes. Right. So, uh, yeah, man, all that to say, learn the law. Learn, learn your rights. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, I think, the, you know, the, the misinformation, the, uh, the, the, the misappropriation of knowledge, I think, you know, holds, holds a lot of ethnic minorities back. And especially, you know, right? I mean, I know it held me back, uh, you know, when I was fired in Young Life because I, I had a lawsuit. I could have, you know, I could have pursued, you know, legal, mm. legal courses. But again, I didn't, you know, I didn't know things and, and, and I didn't know what was going on and stuff. And I didn't understand why their HR team was reaching out to me and trying to, you know, work things over and stuff. I'm just like <laughs> looking back on it now. I'm like, oh, God damn, man, I, we, we, we could have had something. And, and not that, you know, I hate that it has to come to that. Right. I feel like. Yeah. We should have other other means of being able to break things down and shit, man. But. You know, I think, you know, for me, I mean, at the core of all this is, of course, money. Um, and, and, and you know, next to that, of course, is whiteness. The two are, you know, entangled, to, you know, together. Um, what do you see then, you know, from your own doctoral work? You're getting ready to graduate. You know, when you talk mm -hmm. about the, you know, solutions, dare I say, um, you know, we got COVID hitting, uh you know, four years of just the horrible Trump era and just, you know, darkness. And I don't want to make it seem like, you know, the Biden-Harris ticket is, you know, uh, going to just save us now and stuff, man. There, you know, there's still, we're seeing now, now the, 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 the new smell is worn off, right? It's like, you got cats that don't want to, you know, uh, impeach Trump because, oh, he's out of office, you know, and now you got Fox News trying to turn the tables and be like, oh, this yeah. administration's doing nothing for COVID, I'm like, God damn. And again, as a as a communication theorist, I'm always just like, wow, y'all, y'all people falling for that shit. So amidst all that crap, man, what do you see particularly um moving forward and you know hiring of ethnic minorities? What does that what does that look like, man? What does that what does the evidence say? The evidence says that if you do it right, it's up to the right. You do it wrong. Here's the here's the hard part. You think you're doing it right because you start hiring people that look different. We can get more money to hire people that look different. The question is, what's the experience while they're in, and how long until they're out, right? And what the research says is that an all white let's just use race because we can get into intersectionality and all that, right? But let's just use race. An all white team will perform at let's just call it level ten right? High performing team level 10. But then you get a diverse team that's supposed to be all innovative and creative and all good. But if they, their cultural competence is low, they perform at like level six. 
right? So you hire a lot of diverse teams. You go from performing level 10 to performing level six. You're like, this isn't working, but you try it out for a while. So now you wasted time and money. It hasn't worked. And then you fire those that have quote unquote performed less. Those that have quote unquote performed less because of racial bias or racial minorities that have been traumatized from low scores of belonging, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so they get fired or they don't get their promotion. And over time they just burn out and you have a three to five year cycle of white supremacy through critical race theory uh, recorrecting itself. Ah, we tried, right? Ah, right? So that that's what usually happens all the time. So we are in that space right now. Last year, everybody is switching budgets for this year where everybody's hiring, hiring, hiring. But you have a whole hell of a lot of racial bias in the hiring. So you're hiring for lower end positions, not executives that at least could use their racial minority lived experience to change the the, the strategy and the goals, et cetera. So that's interesting to me uh, that, that we're repeating history again. The way we're successful though, is to increase the cultural competence and understanding with the right tools that double down on that cultural competence of leadership. And I'm talking about CEOs, C-suite leadership, VP level people, and then have a cascading down, trickle down effect of like, all right, we've equipped the top, then the next layer. Now we're equipping them. And bro, that takes time because mm. you can't even start training because what do we do? And I heard you say this, man, inclusion diversity training, cultural conference training sucks. And, uh, you know, I try not to take offense to it. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, no. But like the reason it sucks, bro, is because we don't do an audit at the beginning to create metrics and line of authority and accountability so that you graded at 1.2 and you better get your ass to 2.3 in 12 months or you white, black or otherwise, you lose your job. You gotta create that sustain that internal reliability, um, accountability is what I meant to say, so that you can get sustainability. Cause if you create policy that is inclusive and equitable, and systems out of that policy that are inclusive and equitable, then you got a machine that's running. It don't matter. It don't matter what oil you put in. It's got to work its way from point A to point B. Now, now that process, it doesn't matter if you're a 20 person nonprofit or you're a 5,000 person, uh, I don't know, whatever organization, that process takes three years because what you're doing through all those things is building culture. We are. That, and that's the piece, like whatever, and what it, what's the stat that whoever the leader is, after three years, 80% of the organization becomes like 80% of who the leader is. So the CEO has to be culturally competent. And mm. if they're a white male, and, they, and, and likely they are, they're gonna probably wanna move at the speed of white supremacy. Oh, I just, and it sounds like I'm gonna be, we gotta be safe, we gotta plan out. Yeah. You have a lot of racial minorities dying and saying, I want to move at the speed of my liberation. And then you got to find the middle ground because you can't destruct the whole organization, right? You can't like blow it all up as much as I in my heart of hearts would love to. A yeah. lot of times blow it all up. You hurt everybody if you blow it all up. And you hurt some more than most, right? So, so there is a way forward, but it has to be research-based. It has to be with a proven theoretical framework, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what I'm working with is cultural intelligence and at an organizational level. And that theory at large is a global started in Singapore. You know, it's it, there's there's almost 300,000 assessment and the data is consistent regardless of sector. 
If you increase the cultural competence of leaders, they will create culturally competent systems. You put in race in there and all these things, and the data shows that highly culturally competent teams outperform their previous selves by about 300% due to innovation and creativity. So like, I'll take it back to the church. Can you imagine in this multicultural church, multicultural world that is super divided, what could happen if the church now becomes diverse and competent? I go back to, uh, shoot, I haven't quoted it in a while because I haven't been in ministry, but John 13, 35. There you go. Where Jesus is talking to his diverse disciples with diverse experiences, diverse perspectives, diverse education, diverse socioeconomic. And he says, the way y'all love one another, the world will know that I'm real. All right, cool. Let's start thinking about multiracial, multigendered, not just the binary gender, right? Because the church no longer just believes that at large. There's, it's not the 3% that believe about sexuality, LGBTQ, all that stuff. It is now diverse in every way, shape or form. And nobody has figured it out. So imagine if the church figured it out then everybody's gonna be asking, what the fuck are they doing? Because that's what happens, right? Whoever figures out, that's innovation. And what we know is that 3% or so of the population are uh, entrepreneurs. Then then people usually think, oh, I need at least 50 to 60% of humanity to like change human culture, whether that's business or family or whatever. But you only need 18% more. So if we get 21-22% of the church to figure this shit out, it could change the world. This is interesting. What? Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that 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 is my dream. That makes me fly. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. I I think well, so I got a couple questions on that and you know, I realize, you know, we're pushing up on an hour and everything, man, but I think there's two things since I know you um the first question really is, is like, you know, how then do you structure your faith now? Um, you know, the, the goal here is to, you know, run these back to back because, you know, you know, for the audience, you know, I want to want to have you you and your wife on. But I wanted to give you both, you know, the, the, the time to talk about, you know, just life in general and stuff, man. And I, don't, I, don't th- I think I met Anna once when I was in Denver, when you had, you know, when you had yeah. us out and stuff, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, you know me and, 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 and just kind of where I've been. And I think where I struggle, man, is that I feel like aside from some of the relationships that I made, you included, mm-hmm. I really see my time as director of the Center for Youth Ministry Studies at North Park a waste. Um, mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was met with hardship and it was I didn't leave when, in, a, in a necessarily bad way. But what that position really yammered for was a white conservative particularly male it ended up with a white conservative woman but you know they were like well that's that's okay it's second best you know <laughs> second best um you know at least it's not a nigga anymore you know what i'm saying at least it's not somebody up in here with malcolm x and nat turner up on the goddamn walls and stuff and you know we don't have to like deal with that shit you know we can you know we can deal with you know, fucking, you know, focus on the family. Um, so, and, and, you know, and for me, I mean, you know, that I have a therapist, so I've, 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 I've had yeah. to work through 
just my own disappointment with that. Because I did. I genuinely came in with visions because that's the, the position that was sold to me was we want you to change shit up. We're, we don't want a white, you know, the person who hired me was a black provost and he wanted me to change shit up and be like, mm. out with this white way of doing things. I'm hiring you because I know you can do this. He mm. ends up leaving and it's just kind of like, oh shit. So mm. one, what's the feasibility of this all actually happening? And two, where do you find your faith in the midst of, of all of this now, man? And, 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 you know, as, you know, someone who's understood theology from not just a, a pulpit, but actually studying it and, and stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think it's possible. Research shows it is. I've lived it out in a very diverse conservative and not conservative staff that I had in Denver of different races and genders. It, it's, and and, and I, we lived it out, right? Like we, we inherited the system didn't work, we changed it up, and then we all were like, whoa, this is working, and then we started to see numbers double, right? So we lived it out, I know it works. Um, as far as my own faith, man, yeah, bro, that was a, that, that's, how much time you got? I got three more out, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in short, man, that's what my master's work was about. I specifically chose a reformed theological, a reformed theology seminary, Western, and I went in with my non-reformed theology, and I was like, "Well, if I can make it through here, <laughs> okay. on purpose, it's gonna it's gonna fine tune me." So I was I was writing about James Cone and stuff, right? And 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 combating with my professors, experienced some racism there too, but made it through theology degree. And that time, two thousand whatever it was that those three years or so. Uh, man, I got messed up because I was deconstructing everything and I came on the other side super liberal, non-evangelical. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I say liberal when we center white supremacy. But I, I just, I'll check myself on that and I'll say I, I was outside of the conservative bubble and spectrum of theology, yet I still was pretty evangelical in a lot of things, pretty ecumenical, you know? But um, but here's what happened, bro, and, and you can get into this as a little foreshadowing from your time with Anna. <laughs> Anna's an artist, man. I'm a so so I'm I'm like Calvin, you know. I'm gonna take this all these ideas, I'm gonna put them into order, and I'm gonna teach everybody about it and write seventy books, right? Like eventually I'll write a lot and stuff. She she's like, I think his name is Jackson Pollock, the artist. Okay, yeah. Uh, that just like, I mean, that's not her art and uh, expression, but she lives life this way sometimes. Um, when something is oppressive and hurting of people, she says, fuck it, I'm, I'm done with it. So that's what she did with Christianity, bro. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, if you're in Young Life and you know me, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> I never knew that. So I was like, typical white white male supremacy space where I didn't feel psychologically safe to share my journey where my wife is now an agnostic and she's like this is all fucked up and and I had to I didn't have an option other than I keep my wife or I keep my friends and faith mm. and and I would still say I have a faith now and I have obviously more questions than answers because when we have answers, it's culturally biased, and that's when we get in trouble, right? Yeah. Uh, 
So, so man, bro, that process for me was like highly traumatic. In, into my immigration trauma, I'm not safe. If it comes out, I might lose my job, which I wouldn't have lost my job. But like, but I knew intuitively as a racial minority, I would have lost power and influence. Absolutely. He's too dangerous because whatever, right? Which is also toxic that, that that would have likely happened. I can't say definitively, but I'll just say in research, it's been proven to happen. Um, and yeah, man, um, I have way more questions than I have answers now. I have a faith. I still have a, a, a foundation of liberation theology and a foundation of inclusion. Like, here's what changed, bro. When I understood research and inclusion, diversity, and equity, that that's real, and what, what the negative impact is, that became my, my hermeneutics. Culturally intelligent, inclusion, diversity, and equity. If it doesn't fit in that, man, I'm throwing it out because that's my new framework. And my old framework was sacrifice. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. And sacrifice is white supremacy, language for slavery, a theology of sacrifice when we don't think about systems, exclusion, inequitable, etc. So, So I threw a theology of sacrifice out. Yeah, I, I said I'm gonna go for a theology of liberation. Um, and, and in my own words, what that means is at a personal, interpersonal, legal, structural, systemic, uh, spiritual level. If it's not liberation, it's not the direction that God wants anything to go. And so, if if I'm not pursuing the redemption, I, I, I will use that Christian language in every one of those ways all the time or at least you're saying we know we got to go slower here like a big pulley system to go faster over here if it's not that detailed out bro that's that's a the most toxic theological perspective that will lead to perpetual slavery Mm. so so yeah if it's not inclusion uh diversity inclusion and equity for the sake of diversity through a through a through the highway of liberation, then then I'll call that the most fucked up oppressive theology that Christianity can have. And, and that's why I can't deal with conversations anymore. I don't want to hear ignorant conversations that come from the filter of white supremacy and sacrifice because I'm wasting my time. Right? Right. Like right. I'm wasting my time. I need to say like, that's why I went to get a degree, so I don't have to waste my time with people that are enacting white supremacy and they're like trying to throw some biased online articles or historical biased theology my way. And I'm like, like you know, you know what it is. When you go through a doctorate, you like, you're forced to look at the nuance and pick it up quickly. So I don't, I, relationships aren't a waste of time theoretical theological frameworks that are steeped in sin are you know what i mean oh absolutely absolutely um yes i mean i think i mean yeah i i I ask myself these 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 questions a lot right about the the effectiveness of you know i think most people right especially educated folks in whether it's formal or informal I'll just yeah, yeah. put it out there. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying. I mean, I, and and I, you know, I think most people ask themselves, "What is, what has been my imprint? What has what has been my, you know, effectiveness?" And mm-hmm. and and maybe you know, it's just the old, you know, older I get, I ask, right? Like, what 
what will be the legacy if to, you know to use an evangelical term and titles of a whole bunch of goddamn books and shit, right? Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. I think you know. I think you know. If you'd asked me this 25 years ago, I would have said, "Oh my gosh, to have a thriving club and a." You know, a, a fruitful oh, yeah. ministry where you have young people coming back. But I think about it, I'm just like, okay, at the base level, Young Life's approach, earning the right to be heard. I mean, you can it, it, applicate that to everywhere, right? I mean, I have to do that with my daughter, right? Oh, I can't really? just walk in and like, like I have to build shit up, right? I mean, we, we know about that. We know about all these things, right? So on that basis level, I'm like, okay, I'm with that. But I think about... Most of the kids I was working with 25 years ago, man, they often doing good shit. They're not ministers. Mm. They're not, you know, mm. they're not, uh, you know, being out there and doing shit. But I think, like you said, when you leave the Christian world and see yeah. a different way of things being, this is why I continue to go to places like AAR and, and, and yeah. other academic guilds, man, because you see a different way <laughs> and it's healing, I think, to see yes. that because it's it's so you know you can get stuck in one way and i know even for me i mean i only thought young life was the only way to do camping right in the summer um mm. and and you know now for me looking at it like yes young people need somebody in, involved in their life but goddamn allow them to become who they're whoever they're going to become you know without trying to implement some kind of theological i don't know structure on them you know my mentoring now Yes, there is some spirituality, but a lot of it has to do with just being like, let me let me let me get you through college. <laughs> let me get you successfully through college and let me get you so that you can figure out what the hell you're going to do next in life. So, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I don't I, you know, I don't know. And and, and I, again, I know our time is is nigh, man, and and and, and whatnot. And um, what do you see moving forward? Because I, I hear you on the data. I hear you on what's what's been out there. I guess my my question becomes: Will people implement it? Will people actually change? Right? Because the data is there. You're absolutely right. It's it's clear. My partner Emily, she works yeah. for an organization. Um, oh yeah, that's right. You yeah. know that is it is women of color, queer, LGBTQ centered, and it's a completely different way of thinking. I'd never seen nonprofit work and run like that ever, especially HR. I mean, she's doing like next level shit, HR moving away from Western practices. So I guess I'm, I'm asking you, what do you, what are you, what are some of your predictions, um, you know, moving forward, given in the reckoning that we've had in 2020 um, and that a lot of organizations, I think the next generation coming through, I don't know if your sons are like this, but you know, I know my daughter's, she real critical. She gives side eyes to you know the shit that in a in a hot minute. They like, what the hell is this? Uh uh-uh. uh, I don't believe that shit. So I don't know. What what do you think? And then we can wrap up on that. Yeah, man. Um, I think that white supremacy is gonna win. Okay. I think I think it's gonna continue. I think there'll be pockets of success, but you know that's that's what happens, right? Like there's a insurrection from those that are. Uh, minority people groups and white supremacy just adjusts and minority people groups that used to get two crumbs now get four and they're like they call that a win but it's not sustainable until the laws change 
until the foundational values and beliefs, uh, Christian or not, of this country change. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I am curious when when the, I think it's the 11th or 12th grade high school class is the most diverse ever, when they become our age yeah. in 20 years. Yeah. And they start to have some financial power. Right. Um, but at that time, when whites are the minority, I, I'm a, I think our human nature is to do us at their expense, at, at that other group's expense, right? So, so I hope that we can, I hope that we have an opportunity here 20, 30 years of building a new framework that it's not a, it doesn't need to be a win-loss. It could be a win-win. It could be like everybody's thriving appropriately, taking history and context and inequity into account, right? So that we build these frameworks of inclusivity, but I'm not hopeful of what I can't control. Yeah. I am hopeful of what I can control. Yeah. And I, and I can tell you that I am in conversations with black, brown, white, otherwise executives that are doing some shit, bro, that are putting their privilege on the line after some coaching and training. And I'm like in tears leaving my leaving these non-Christian spaces that are liberating and healing black and brown and other people of color. So I'm seeing some hope, but like those are spaces I control in some way, shape, or form. I don't control after I leave, but like yeah. I'm seeing constant people being like, oh, that's what it is? Like I was just with a client that gave a black woman a sabbatical, one month sabbatical, where that, that thing doesn't even exist in the company just because I suggested it after talking about racial racial stress and trauma. And then they're equipping her and putting their money on the line by giving her a raise, two positions up, and equipping her to do the work. Like, That's good. I'm, I'm seeing shit like that, right? Yeah. So I think I think it's hopeful. I'm, I'm focusing right now. You know, we people of color overextend, so I'm focusing right now on making sure my biracial, bilingual, white boy kids understand their male privilege and shit like that. And yeah. I'm, and, I, and I'm with what I call chosen family, and then I call them chosen family, this group of people that that provide joy, they understand equity, et cetera. And, and I'm having business conversations about black and brown investment companies, black and brown shark tanks kind of thing, uh, venture capital for black and brown entrepreneurs. And, and it's not about black and brown only, right? Because you got all these anti-BLM type ideologies when, when people say stuff like that. It's about gaining financial power, not at the expense of others, but to balance shit out. Yeah. So until money changes hands and is evenly distributed, where talent can rise up regardless of race, like ain't nothing changing, bro. Hmm. Ooh, well, Brother Pablo, I appreciate you taking the time out today, man, to share your story, uh, your thoughts on all of this, man. And this is this has been great, man. I really, really appreciate it. Really appreciate it, man. Um, where can folks find you, man? What's uh, what's uh, what's a good way to you know get you out and you know maybe have you consult with their organization? Yeah, yeah man. So, uh, Thriving Culture. Um, the website is thrivingculturellc.com. Yeah. Um, we we primarily work with for-profit spaces, on as you'll see on the website. But I have a lot of uh, Christian ministry clients um, 
that are about it and trying to cause systemic change, organizational change. I'm part of this other business, the National IDA Center, okay. E-I-D-A. Okay. And, and you can go on eidacenter.com and they do, um, we collaborated on some certifications, DEI, organizational change, talent acquisition, that kind of stuff. So you'll find me around those companies. You can email me. You'll just email me through the website. They'll forward it to me and yeah, man. Uh, hope I hope I get to hear from some people that want to put in some work. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as always, for those of you listening, I'll put all this mess in the show notes and also the article that you and I um, co-authored yeah. on fundraising um, and looking at the inequities. You know that lie yes. within fundraising and whatnot, man. So I, I still look back to that, and uh, you know that was a, that was a good time. Yo, that's the foundation. I know we're wrapping up and, and I'm bringing something new. You don't do that in a conclusion, but <laughs> oh, but bro, from that, this is one of my favorite things is coming up with equitable fundraising systems. Yeah. Equitable fundraising yeah. models. Bro, that that's where it's at. When ministries get to that space where they want to do that type of work, right. that's where it becomes real good, real deep, real hard. But man. That's the stuff right there. Absolutely, man. I wish I had known you where you're at right now 25 years ago. I might I might <laughs> still be, you know, doing something. I don't know. I, I who, who knows, man? But, man, I, I appreciate what you're doing, man. If you ever need a, a cultural theorist to come and help in that that uh, 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 consulting firm of yours, man, let, let me know. I, I'll, uh, I'll come uh, hook it up. All right. The next part, you could, you could take it off and not record it. But, bro, you're on the fucking website. What's that? <laughs> You're on the fucking website. You're on the team. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, brother. Shit. Well, I'm there. No. Shit. Give me, give me. I'll, just let me know, man. Shit. No. I'll, I'll no. hook it up. I'll, I'm letting you know right now. I just signed CSU, uh, Colorado State University. They bring, yeah. Uh, and then I, I signed CU Boulder, a couple of their schools within within the universities and. And so I'm about to be calling you up for real, for real. Okay. Like, All right. Do some training. Bet. Some, Oh, yeah. Bet, man. Well, thanks again, brother. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on, man.